This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Tony Black on a very auspicious day for us to record. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm very well, Duncan. Is auspicious is the word indeed. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's going to be quite a, a memorable episode. This, so I am honoured to be with you. Absolutely. Um, and just for the benefit of our listeners, the reason this is a, a momentous occasion is it is five years exactly to the day since our own first contact on Mike Tony since we recorded <laughs> our very first episode. Uh, so we're going to be in a sort of reflective mood, I think, today, looking back and uh, also maybe having a little look to the future as well. Mm, I think I think it's a good space to do that, really. Five years is always a little bit of a milestone point really i i celebrated it not so long back with my x-files podcast the x-cast and it's uh it, it is it is it is a nice round number in many ways so yeah it's going to be nice to look back on uh on, yeah five years 2017 it just seems like a completely different world now doesn't it even though it was only five years ago it does absolutely and a different world for star trek as well i mean i think mm. by then we must have known Discovery was on its way, but we hadn't seen... No. I don't know, had we seen even a trailer or anything? Wow, I mean, no. Know, I can't remember at that stage. I but think so. basically, it's the whole era of, you know, Kurtzman Trek, New Trek, that whole yeah. phenomenon, which uh, now feels so vast and sprawling and kind of uh, prevalent in the fandom, whether you're, you know, on one side or the other, or, you know, probably like both of us, maybe somewhere slightly in between. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, Star Trek fandom certainly has changed a lot in those five years. I think it's turned into something that's an evolution and maybe of what was there before. But obviously, we'd had the Kelvinverse films from 2009 to 2016, but they were very much spaced out. And in that period, the important period to note there is the rise of social media. You know, the beginnings of Facebook, of Twitter, of Instagram, Tumblr, all of these different places that really sort of took off in that 10-year gap. And the last time we had episodic Trek, like we do now, 2005, none of that existed. You know, we were all still on MySpace back then. <laughs> it was in its infancy. So the discourse around Star Trek in this era and the way it's presented is so different from what we experienced even, you know, in the latter days of the, if you like, the Rick Berman era of Star Trek in the 2000s. So it, it's it's a, it's a whole new frontier in many ways. And we're seeing, I think, Trek fandom react to that new space with, with these new shows, which are very different in many ways in style and tone to what we've had before. So it's quite fascinating in a way that now I think we have three very distinct eras of Star Trek. Uh, and, and, and you can mm. mark them out in all kinds of different ways. Absolutely. And I think you're right. The influence of social media in this particular era, it cuts both ways. I mean, we, we have greater access in some ways to the shows than ever before. We've got 
cast and crew tweeting constantly you, you know you can get into dialogues with them online in a way that you know was pretty much impossible in previous years other than you know maybe at a convention i suppose you could have a brief uh chat with someone but um you know now literally every time a new episode drops we're getting all the kind of behind the scenes uh info on it and all the kind of nuggets and the easter eggs and all that sort of stuff laid out for us but the other side of it is i do feel and i don't know what you think about this that one of the things that I am slightly more lukewarm about with the current era is that I do think that the kind of fan response to things, which can be slightly exaggerated uh, by social media, feels like that is sort of feeding back into the shows. It feels like there are a lot of kind of course corrections in the shows. And I don't know, obviously Star Trek's done that before. We've had kind of retcons and, and changes as shows have developed and grown into themselves. But it does feel like a slightly new phenomenon that you know, there's a fan backlash against something and then by the next season there's a U-turn or there's a kind of, uh, you know, fan clamour for something else and then suddenly that, uh, you, you know, gets highlighted or brought to the fore. And I don't know, I mean, part of me thinks, yeah, that kind of makes sense. They want to to keep people happy. They want to give them what they what they want. But the danger, I suppose, is that it becomes like a kind of focus group exercise and and it starts being something that's made by committee rather than you know, someone with a sort of singular creative artistic vision and kind of, you know, okay, they can like it or lump it. Uh, <laughs> this is what mm. we're doing and we're going to stick with it. I think this is a general problem across a lot of fandoms now in that because a lot of, all, a lot of these intellectual properties like Star Trek are owned by much bigger corporations now who have fingers not just in cinema but in television and streaming and we're starting to see the whole media landscape change. I think what you're finding is that they are far more concerned about whether or not the fan base are going to stick with them and continue to fuel their revenue. For Star Trek, for instance, it's they're going to they want people to subscribe to Paramount Plus. They want people to subscribe to Paramount Plus, and they're going to want these guys to still be invested in Star Trek. And that I think in the old days when it was when TV shows were on networks and they were ran by companies, sure, who were concerned, obviously, about viewing figures and things like this. There's no, you know, th there are similarities for sure. And, you know, VHS or DVD sales back in the day. Because of that because of that ongoing dialogue, as you mentioned now, in that you can tweet at the director of the last episode, you know, Olatunde and Sam, you can tweet that person now and you can say, I hated that episode or I loved that episode. And, you know, a lot of these guys, particularly in Star Trek, actually, they're quite on social media. You know, they are quite accessible. They do check social media. They do interact with fans. And it, in nowadays, that is going to seep back in, 100%. And I think the networks also are, are monitoring this kind of stuff, and they're seeing what ebbs and flows. And I do think we have to factor that in, as that is a factor, that they are now paying more attention, because it's, it's not about viewing figures anymore. It's about subscribers. It's about people interacting and paying money into a service to access Star Trek. Now, the, the reality is most people who love Star Trek this era also love Voyager or they love Next Gen, you know, and they're going to they're gonna subscribe to these things because they're Star Trek fans and they often, you know, the hardcore Star Trek fans have the shows on rotation constantly and they watch very little else. So those guys are going to be invested. But almost, if you like, the swing voters, I think they're concerned about and they're trying to appeal to. And I think I think Picard is a good example of this because I'm enjoying the second season of Picard and we're recording this halfway through. But there is no doubt in my mind that that show has massively course corrected to satiate what fans were saying at the end of season one. At 100%, it is a completely different show in many ways now, not just because of the storytelling, but the style of what they've done. 
and the where they placed a lot of these characters at the beginning of season two. And much as it, I was happier. <laughs> I won't lie, Duncan. I was I was a bit ha- happier. But the the critic in me did say, "Wow, this is very clearly because you're worried about what, what people were saying at the end of season one." So I think that boundary has been crossed definitely, and I think. I think it's Pandora's out of the box now. And I think as social media and, 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 and entertainment continues to develop, I think all fandoms, and they're all having similar experiences in the big fandoms, are going to face this. And there is going to be that that influence that was only there in the old days via letter campaigns or, you know, um, like you said, conventions, where people it's a much more stage-managed interaction. You know, I know conventions are great, and we, we've been to many, and... You know, I'm not saying anything against them, but they are very stage-managed interactions. Whereas on Twitter, you can say anything, you know, or you can fire anything out and it's there. I just I just think it's it's a slightly different paradigm we're in now. For what it's worth, just since this is a history and culture podcast, I don't think Pandora was the one in the box. I'm pretty sure it was her box and she was... Uh, You're she absolutely was right, it. aren't but you? I think, but it's an interesting... I mean, it's an interesting it was, question, you know, what was in the it box? Was, wasn't it, it, it was Plague a, or something like that, actually, now I think about it, or... Or is it is it one of those things that anything can be in there that's terrible? Is that what it was? I, I think it was a load of, a load of terrible things. But there was another aspect to the story. Uh, I'm just uh, looking it up to check that I'm, I'm I'm getting this right. Yeah, there was one thing that was left in the box or the jar or whatever it was after she had opened it, and that was something a Greek word called elpis, meaning expectation, but usually interpreted as hope. Ah, and that just struck me when you mentioned Pandora's box that there is that other side to the story, and of course that idea of hope is central uh, to Star Trek, you know, going back more than 50 years, I guess. Um, I mean, there's that wonderful comic. I think we've discussed it probably getting on for five years ago here on this podcast about the plane crash that Gene Roddenberry was involved in. uh, And the Oatmeal ran a webcomic about it. And it was basically about him, you know, saying to these people on this crashing plane, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And that, I suppose, ultimately is the, that's kind of the message of Star Trek. And I guess even with these new shows, whenever they go in a dark direction, they kind of feel like they have to pull back from it. Uh, So we had it with Discovery from, you know, the massive shift between season one and season two, same with Picard, massive shift between season one and season two. There is that kind of idea that um, however dark, however bleak things get. And again, in season three of Discovery, kind of the same thing, uh, you, you know, a bleak, shattered, fallen universe, uh, or galaxy anyway, uh, there is hope, things are going to get better. And that's the kind of driving force. Um, so it just struck me when you said that, uh, and, and not just bringing it up to be pedantic, but there, <laughs> there is a weird kind of Star Trek-y connection there as well. Uh, always correct me when I get mythology wrong, for sure, because, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 a good, oh, it's a good point, actually, yeah, because that is there. And, it, and you are seeing that in a lot of these shows. I mean, we're we're about a month away from Strange New Worlds, which I think we're all very excited about. I certainly am, and it looks like it could be quite hopeful minded, and it looks like it's going to go in, you know, some some fun directions and things like this, and that and that's great, you know. And I think I think that is one thing that they've course corrected on a little bit at points, or they've they've sort of floated between, in that they started this kind of era of Star Trek with a very dark uh, allegorical sensibility you know i mean it's it, you know the the discovery kicked off just as, as trump was coming in and we'd had brexit and you were seeing convulsions in the west and all of these things we've talked about in this podcast before but i think there was a doom a sense of dread around the creation of these shows 
in the wake of things like Islamic terror, you know, or that, and, 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 you know, the, all these kind of bombings that have been happening in Europe and, and, you know, fundamentalism and all this kind of thing. And I think, I think fans found that a little bit difficult, you know, and, and, and quite understandably because, while Star Trek has never shone shone away from dark, troubling subject matter, you know, and it's all it's there all through the '90s episodes. It was always shot through with with that sense that we were in a, a, a space and time where, if anything, Star Trek would reflect the past through alien species or what other people were going through. Humanity pretty much had still cracked it, and they and they were kind of on that level. Whereas I think. In new Star Trek, there was a sense that maybe humanity had gone back into the <laughs> pardon my, my French a little bit more, and particularly in Picard into the mad into the melt. Yeah, yeah, better, better exp- expression. <laughs> and yeah. I think I think maybe fans found that a little bit difficult at times because while I understand that the the thought process behind that, I think what what people who watch Star Trek want is that hope, is that sense that everything is going to be all right in the end, and while that is that ultimately I'm sure was in the minds of anyone writing this show. And much as I might criticize shows like discovery and things like this, I absolutely have faith that these people love Star Trek and they, they're trying to do what they think is the best for the franchise. I've no doubt of that, but I think sometimes that the, that hope has been wanting. And I think that's something they're definitely starting to correct a little bit now and change. So are you suggesting that the folksy Silver Fox Captain Pike is a, a kind of younger Joe Biden? Is that where we're going with it? <laughs> well, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah. I mean, there will, there will be an analysis one day of what president he uh, <laughs> he matches up to. But I mean, you only have to look at someone like Rios and what they've done, what they've done with Rios this season in Picard. You know, he starts off, and I think, and the, you know, Twitter exploded, and I, you know, I hand, hold my hand up. I was kind of one of these people saying, "Rios as captain of the Stargazer is absolutely a show I would watch because he's so good." You know, he's so much fun in that kind of space. So I think that's kind of what people are going to want. God knows what president he'd be, actually, Rios. <laughs> That'd be one to think about, wouldn't it? Well, interestingly, when the West Wing ended, uh, it ended with. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen The West Wing. Uh, Jimmy Schmitz um, being inaugurated as the new president. And he was the, you know, going to be the first Hispanic president, but actually based on Barack Obama. Funnily enough, the writers based that character on, you know, Barack Obama, who was then a kind of rising star. Uh, I guess maybe he was a senator by that point. So, yeah, who knows? But uh, yeah, I would absolutely be down for a Captain Rios uh uh, show at some point once Patrick Stewart decides he's had enough with Picard, which I think he has already at the uh, yeah. in terms of the filming schedule. Um, yeah. But yeah, he is definitely a character who could warrant his own show very much, I suppose, as we had with Captain Pike. You know, everyone fell in love with Captain Pike, uh, so he got his own show. I mean, I suppose that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That that show was absolutely born out of fan pressure. You, you know, it did not. I don't think. Well, who knows? Maybe they always had it at the back of their mind, but it, it it seemed to be something that was driven by the fans. And certainly the narrative that it was driven by the fans is one that they are pushing in the promotion for that show, you know, saying you asked for it. This is what you asked for. Uh, we're kind of going to give you everything you want. I don't know. It remains to be seen, doesn't it? Whether that's the best way creatively to make these decisions or not, but it certainly seems to be the way that things are going these years. Mm, I think it's interesting because there's a bit of a push pull in, in terms of the fact that I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if they had the idea of a Pike TV show in the back of their minds the moment they made that decision at the end of Discovery season one to bring the Enterprise in. It wouldn't surprise me because the, obviously Discovery, particularly, has very much lent into the original series from day one and has has tried to weave itself around that canon. 
So they, much as there are, you know, I have some doubts about the need for a Strange New World show, really. They're clearly wanting to evoke TOS. And I get that. You know, they, that comes off the back of what Abrams did with 09 Star Trek and the success of that. But at the same time, I think they have also wanted to try and experiment and and create things that are a little bit outside the box. And much as I, like I said before, I don't think all of it works, but I do like the fact they have experimented. I do like the fact that they've they've tried to not make it conventionally what we've seen before, repeat, repeat, repeat. You know, the way they've done Lower Decks and they've made it a comedy about the, you know, the... Um, the ensigns and things like this. Prodigy being completely different and about a nascent crew of teenagers learning, you know, life lessons in the Federation. You know, there's, 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 there's a lot of different angles with it, which, and the fact that we might get a Starfleet Academy show and it's looking pretty confident. I think we will. And I think that's great, really. I do. I think I think the fact that they're exploring all these different angles, even if the storytelling doesn't always work, I like the fact that they're doing that at the same time as maybe too heavily at points trying to rely on TOS and TNG, particularly, and a little bit of Voyager. But I think I think I'd like to see a little bit more of the creativity in creating completely new things in the Star Trek world and not relying too heavily on past glories. But I do think they're trying to experiment, and I think I think that is really good, and I think that is a, 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 a smart way to try and keep Star Trek evolving with a very cha- a very different and a very cha- challenging landscape, really, because television is is much more, I think, creative now than it ever was. You know, even back in the '90s and the kind of shows we grew up with. You know, there are some fascinating TV shows being made, some really good TV shows being made these days. So I think. I applaud them for trying to, you know, experiment and, and freshen things up. Well, certainly we've never had as much variety uh, in Trek as as there is now. I mean, the, the closest, I suppose, would be to say, you know, Deep Space Nine and Voyager were doing quite different things at the same time. And then we had two shows on at once. Obviously, we had Next Gen and Deep Space Nine similarly kind of doing slightly different things, but simultaneously. But now we've got, uh, I've actually lost count by now, you know, five, <laughs> six, seven, I don't know what, what, what we're at now. Um, and there's usually only a couple of them running at a time because of the shorter seasons. But the fact is, what Star Trek is in this period is much more varied than it ever has been in the past, which I think, yeah, there, there are a lot of strengths to that. That gives creative opportunities. The, the weird thing is, though, up until now, possibly with Strange New Worlds, which, as you say, at the time of recording, I don't know when this is going to drop, but at the time of recording, we haven't seen anything more than a couple of trailers. They have spent five years churning out Star Trek to great success without doing a traditional Star Trek show. I mean, literally every single show they've done, they've subverted the format in some way. Uh, it, it, in a way that, you know, they certainly didn't do, I don't think, maybe Deep Space Nine is the only one that we could say kind of did something similar to that before. I mean, Next Gen was updating the format, but it was very much trying to kind of certainly initially replicate the feel and the, the you, you know, the things that people liked about the original series, or at least some of them while changing others. Uh, Voyager very much trying to recapture Next Gen. Enterprise, again, sort of trying to recapture a mixture of Next Gen original series, whatever. You know, those were shows in a certain mould. And maybe that's because they had the same kind of creative teams working on them and the same kind of oversight and so on. But compared to that, you know, Berman era, where it does feel like Rick Berman was the sort of, um, you know, the guy with his sort of with an eye on everything, apart from maybe Deep Space Nine, which he sort of just, uh, <laughs> you know, that was the kid playing out in the street or something. That he wasn't really uh, keeping a very close eye on. 
these days with Alex Kurtzman, it feels like he is involved in all these shows, but he seems very happy to hand each one over to quite um, different creative personalities with their own distinct uh, sort of um, visions for for what they're doing and, and to deliberately make them as distinct as possible. But it does strike me as interesting that they, you know, so with Discovery... They weren't doing a conventional Trek show because it wasn't, you know, about the captain. And and now, okay, obviously that's changed. Uh, with Picard, they, you know, it was a sort of dystopian uh, <laughs> misery drama, at least to begin with. I loved the first season of Picard. I have to say, I don't think anything will top that first season for me, but it was very much not a conventional Trek show. We barely ever saw a Federation starship. And then obviously in season two, that first episode, we got to see a Federation starship and everyone went nuts. And then they've kind of, uh, you know, taken that away from us again for most of the season. You know, all the shows, obviously Lower Deck's doing something totally different uh, because, yeah, we're on a, you know, a starship, but it's a crappy starship and uh, and the the we're going for the jokes rather than for the most part the kind of drama prodigy great show wonderful show for kids uh brilliant introduction to star trek but again it's not a starfleet crew on a starfleet ship which is what star trek has always broadly speaking been so i do think it's interesting that they have it feels like they've sort of been circling and maybe strange new worlds is the turning point for that uh but it feels they've sort of been circling you know what a star trek show is in a way that's oddly different, because you might say the Abrams films, are, you know, they were leaning into that nostalgia and they were very much about like, you know, okay, what what's the recipe for Star Trek? And we'll kind of try and sometimes, to their detriment, I think, sort of shove everything in the blender to kind of make the Star Trekiest Star Trek we can do. Whereas these shows, actually, they've been trying to say, well, yeah, we, we know, yeah, we could do, you know, what you think of as Star Trek, but we're going to do something a bit different over here. And we're going to do something totally different over there. And, you know, you pick and choose which ones you like. Uh with, you know, assuming you can get them in your territory and we're <laughs> blocking them geographically. Yeah. But they're all pushing in slightly different directions and there isn't one... That, I suppose there's less of a sense of what's... You know, the very first, uh, back in 1964, Gene Roddenberry wrote that pitch document, Star Trek is dot, dot, dot. And I suppose that's that's kind of the open question that's being explored over the past five years is... Uh, you know, what is Star Trek? And it's always been pushed. I mean, Rotha Khan pushed what Star Trek could be. Uh, Next Gen did push to some extent what Star Trek could be. Uh, Deep Space Nine massively pushed what Star Trek could be. But it certainly feels like that's a big part of the agenda these days, or over the last five years anyway, has been to expand our idea of what Star Trek might be. And obviously, whenever that happens, there are people who push back. Yeah, and I th- I think there's, there's a lot of things really with this in that I think one of the big things that had been said before about the older shows was that it took a few seasons for each of them to warm up and find themselves usually by around the third season uh, and and usually that tended to correspond particularly with next gen and uh ds9 that corresponded with a certain creative taking over and kind of putting their stamp on what it was so for tng it was michael pillar for ds9 it was iris stephen bear and by the third season, they'd really sort of established themselves as the people running that kind of thing, particularly. And I think you saw, and even with the Abrams films, I mean, arguably, really, only Beyond is the film that truly represents a, a bigger version of TOS in the in in many ways. You know, the first two the first two are very much setting the scene and establishing that. You know, with with Star Trek 09 being an origin story, if you like, you know, in the in the superhero comic book sense, and then Into Darkness being 
well, Enterprise season three on steroids in many ways, you know, but um, doing that, doing that reactive kind of allegory. But uh, yeah, I think it takes a while for these things to really bed in. It's easy to forget that. And it is easy to forget that a lot of the early episodes of a lot of the shows that we now venerate and we watch repeatedly on you know Netflix and other territories, but particularly now on Paramount Plus in the US and eventually elsewhere, we venerate them a little bit more than maybe we should in part because I think some of the new shows have also taken time for to, to click and for people to understand what they are and what they're doing. And I certainly think that was the case with Discovery. Discovery didn't really figure out what it wanted to be until season three into season four. And I think it does know what it wants to be now, realistically. I think it, it, it and, and there are some people who go for that. And there are some people who don't. I'm more in the don't camp, if I'm honest. But I understand, I appreciate now that it's reached a point where it kind of has found itself and what it's trying to be more than it did over the first couple of seasons. And I think with the other shows, that, that it's perhaps slightly different in that they are created in a very specific way. You know, Discovery did start off with a ship and a crew, even if it wasn't about the, cap, the, the captain as such. Whereas Picard and... I suppose Lower Decks does in a way as well, but it's slightly different. And Prodigy is about finding a ship. They're all, they all come at it, like you said, in different ways. And I think, I think the essence of Star Trek and what they're trying to do is tell these hopeful stories. But I think what also they're trying to do is prevent the kind of fatigue that maybe they saw set in in the previous era. And by the time that people got to Enterprise, it was a bit too late, even though Enterprise did some interesting things. And if it had carried on, it would have been interesting in what it did. But I think they're, they're worried if they do a conventional show that people expect, they'll struggle to broaden the horizons of Star Trek. But the, the, thing, the thing that I always keep thinking, Duncan, is do they really think that tons of new fans and new people are going to be coming into a show like Picard, for instance? Because I'm not so sure. I, I, I think a lot of the Star Trek that is leaning into the old days is the people who it's for are going to show up anyway. Either way, they're going to turn up. I'm wondering it, why they wouldn't, why they think sometimes that such a reliance on older characters, older scenarios, even in even while exploring these new ways in, like Prodigy, like Lower Decks, is going to draw in tons and tons of new fans because I don't necessarily think those people are there. You know, you only have, you only have to see that in something like the box office returns for Star Trek films. You know, the, the Star Trek 09 did very well, but it's kind of been fairly depreciating returns since and beyond famously didn't do that well. And, you know, it was they, they spent a lot on it and it didn't make the kind of money that I think Paramount were thinking Star Trek should make in the 700, 800, 900 million range. And it's never going to happen. You know, that that kind of fan base, the, the all-encompassing fan base that you've got for Star Wars or Marvel or even James Bond doesn't exist for Star Trek. It is, it is a passionate, but it is a smaller fan base. You know, even if even if it's it's very busy on social media, it's not as huge as those others. So I think really, in a way, I wonder why they don't, in in some senses, give fans in a, in many ways what they want and do more a more conventional Star Trek show with with maybe a, a new style of storytelling. Sure, but I don't know. I th I think it's interesting. It feels like they're trying to attract lots and lots of people in. And at times it divides the fan base, particularly on social media, but I don't always know what the purpose of that is. Well, maybe they 
do know what they're doing to some extent insofar as, you know, the style of discovery obviously is quite different to Trek's past in terms of it. I suppose the thing that strikes me about discovery is it's, it's very kind of emotional. It's very kind of um, earnest. There, there's a, 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 and also it's very kind of flashy and, and stylish and, and everything. And I wonder whether, I, th- I think discovery may be appealing. You, you know, we're both. I mean, I'm thinking about this. Uh, you know, when we started recording the show five years ago, I was in my mid thirties. I'm now approaching forty uh, rapidly. I mean, we, we are of a, a previous generation, right? And you know, yeah. they are trying to bring younger people in. Obviously, something like Prodigy is going to bring the kids in, and they are going to then probably go and watch Voyager, and then maybe they'll watch Next Gen, and then maybe when they're a bit older, they'll maybe they'll get into ds9 or, or you know whatever it is like that seems like they've got a plan there it's a kind of long-term plan because they're relying on those kids growing up with a new kind of star trek uh but that kind of makes sense i suspect discovery does pull in you know people in their 20s that maybe haven't watched star trek before i mean i have you know anecdotally i know of people who that was their first trek and then they got into star trek that way same as happened with 09 for a lot of people but it's a tricky one and you're right it's always been a sort of balance they're struggling to find i mean just this week chris pine uh was talking about the new you know kelvin star trek 4 and saying basically they need to stop trying to chase these kind of marvel figures and just accept that you know star trek is what it is if they do a good one the fans will love it and that is a you know it's not like they're not making money off this stuff i mean it, it's it, i think there's this kind of sense of because it is you know it is a big fandom there is a lot of it you, you know compared to like other sci-fi fandoms i don't know babylon 5 or uh or even something like doctor who or something i don't i don't know how what the comparison is there but my assumption is the Star Trek fandom is bigger than the Doctor Who fandom, although that is Ooh. pretty huge as well. I don't know. I, th- I think they not, might be. They're not on at a the par. level. Do you think that's wrong? Maybe they, are they on the maybe, par? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe, I'm, maybe that's just my my bias showing. But you know, Star Wars is something that uh, everyone is a fan of, essentially, and and Marvel have kind of done the same with the MCU. They've kind of created something that everyone is a fan of. It's it's, it, and we're not in the era where you know, fandoms are kind of niche and, you know, something to be ashamed of almost as, you know, being a Trekkie was when we were growing up. But I think they need to accept that Star Trek is never going to be Star Wars. And over, you know, decades, Star Trek has been trying to be Star Wars one way or another uh, with varying success, but it's never going to have quite that hold on people. Not to say it doesn't have massive cultural penetration and power and, you know, is a huge part of American uh, popular culture over the 20th and 21st centuries. But I think Star Wars has something that is more mainstream in the sense that people who aren't that into sci-fi, people who aren't that um, sort of geeky about it necessarily, still sort of passionately love it and feel that kind of emotional connection to it. In the same way as with the MCU, people go and see all of those films, you know, every three, four, six months, whenever they come out. They kind of created something similar. I don't think Star Trek's ever quite going to manage that. Maybe because it is it's slightly too much its own thing. It is slightly, you know, not niche exactly, because it obviously it's very popular and it's very uh, appealing to a lot of people, but it's not quite so crowd-pleasing. No. <laughs> we can put it that way, no. we, you know, which is one of the reasons that we love it. But I, I think there's always this danger that they're sort of chasing that, especially with the movies. That was always a problem, wasn't it? Is, you know, can they just be satisfied with hitting the audience that they have something like first contact a brilliant fan star trek movie i love that film i loved it when i first saw it at the cinema i couldn't believe how brilliant it was but actually watching it you know 
through a different lens. For someone who's never seen Star Trek before, that film is absolutely nuts. You know, you know, most of it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I watched it with my partner a few years ago. She was like, I have no idea what's going on. This is really baffling. <laughs> Obviously, Star Trek Four, the one with the whales, uh, that did cross over because everyone could get it, you know, because everyone's seen like 1980s rom-coms and the time travel stuff is fairly straightforward. And basically, it's a very accessible story. Um, but you could say not all that Star Trekky. I mean, it relies on the characters from Star Trek that we love, but the the kind of all the tropes, all the kind of Star Trekky paraphernalia is actually sort of deliberately absent in a way um, because they're doing something else. They're they're doing you know an eighties sort of screwball rom com yeah. type thing. Yeah, but then could you say in a very different way, similar about Star Trek 09, Hence why it was such a big success because so much of that and a lot of the things you're talking about they they have very 21st century affectations that first star trek film you've got kirk in a bar you know he's having a bar fight mm. you know he's 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 speed driving a car to the beastie boys you know intentionally had plenty of bar fights in the original series though sure I mean, sure <laughs> look but, at trouble with tribbles but it's the way that the dialogue is i think in part as well the, the way they speak yeah. and i think this is something that discovery is very much uh, appropriated and picard to an extent as well but I think the the mm. manner of speech, I think, was a big barrier for a lot of people. And, you know, I, I, there was a big discussion mm-hmm. about this on Twitter recently, actually, about the way language has changed in Star Trek. And I think some of the older guard, especially those of us who grew up with the 90s, we loved Star Trek for the fact there was a certain formality sometimes. There was a certain structure to dialogue. It had a rhythm. You know, someone described it as almost like a, 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 a it's a bit of a reach, this, but a Shakespearean style. I, I don't necessarily think that, but I think, I think they're... There is a sense that it was its own thing. You know, Star Trek was written in a very specific way. And that's changed now. And I think, you know, not just because of profanity, because that's just part of the factor of the fact that they're not on a network anymore and they don't have to worry about these things. They they can. I think had 90 Star Trek not been on a network and it had been streaming, they would have been swearing. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's that it's the stylistics of how the language is, I think, makes a massive difference. And I think in Star Trek, in uh, The Voyage Home, the, the language there... Off was a lot more 20th century, you know, not just because they were in the 20th century. Double dumbass on yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> double dumbass on you and all this kind of thing. And I think people, well, yeah, I think people yeah. understand that <laughs> stuff, you know. And also, of course, I mean, you know, I was joking earlier when I said in the med, but I mean, the fact is Star Trek has actually always had swearing. I mean, we had, you know, Picard's allowed to swear in French, but True. not in English, True. because the assumption is that the English audience doesn't care about French swear words. But if he says the same word in English, it would be it would be censored. You know, it's kind of ridiculous. O'Brien in... Um, DS9 says bollocks in one episode. Yeah. I was astonished by it. But I think that's only because in America, that doesn't it's not really seem like a, a, a sort of serious yeah. swear word. Whereas, you know, uh, in the UK, for us, from, an, from a UK perspective, that, you know, if you were shouting that out of work, <laughs> as is, you would expect, you know, I don't know, depending on your workplace culture, that could be a bit of an issue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and actually going back to the original series, I mean, this is a digression, but um, they had words like hell that were, you know, considered quite, uh, borderline uh, at the time as to what was but, sort of acceptable on TV. But now so, you've got. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole different question. You're right, but but yeah, you're right. It, it is partly about that. That is more about what you can get away with. I think you're right. The language thing has certainly changed. It has become more colloquial with characters like Gerati, Tilly, in particular. You know, who who feel very much more of our time than of that future time. And I don't think it is too much of a stretch to make that parallel with Shakespeare. It's not Shakespearean in the sense of being flowery and poetic and, you know, um, 
filled with rich metaphor and so on. But insofar as, you know, Shakespeare, and not just Shakespeare, but any dramatist of that time is writing in a certain metre, they're writing an iambic pentameter, yeah. they're following certain kind of formal conventions. Star Trek, I think it's true, has always had that that kind of language style to it, if you know what I mean. It is slightly formalised because it's this kind of quasi-military uh, organisation. And because these people are not quite us. I mean, yeah, you know, they exactly. very like us, but they are also deliberately different. And, mm. and that distance has always been part of it. Mm. And now you've, you've, you've seen that ebb away, not just in the past, you know, where in the latest episode, um, it's either the latest episode or it's next week's episode, which I have seen of Picard, but um, mm. Brent Spiner drops a very nasty, a very severe F-bomb, you know, and he's not, he's not the first mm-hmm. one to do that. Obviously, you know, we've seen Tilly do that in, in, in Discovery. But I think there there is there is a change in the fact that that colloquial aspect absolutely is the case that they they don't speak you know if you if you think about how I mean one of my bugbears with Discovery is that they've gone forward to the thirty second century I think it is or the thirty first century one of the two and it, it, everyone is speak and most of them speak like they could be from you know. 2025 like you know and i'm a bit like i really I, or, or the, the the universe that far ahead is is so similar it might as well be the 25th century frankly you know it doesn't really make any it's not really any different and i think that that was a massive missed opportunity to really push the envelope but i think it it, it is it, i think a lot it's all about the way that they i think one of the re, one of the ways they're trying to make star trek more accessible in the vein of of a Star Wars or a Marvel is through this kind of style. Is through making it less about less use of techno babble, more familiar styles of speech, characters that don't feel like they're too futuristic. And I think there's a real divide in fandom as to whether that's the right path to be taking. Now I can see both sides of it. I can see the, the uniqueness of Star Trek ebbing away a little, and that being a real shame. But at the same time. I can see how it could be quite alienating and it could be potentially, and you made a great point about the younger Star Trek fans coming in. It's less about attracting people who've grown up, you know, who are 40 like us nearly and have never liked Star Trek and suddenly, oh, that's a new show. It's more about the youth finding Star Trek and finding things to love about it. And that's a great point because if these these new approaches and this more grounded dialogue does bring them in and then they watch you know, a hardcore TNG episode, (laughs) I don't know, something like Silicon Avatar, you know, (laughs) or something like that, and they love it, then great, you know, great. So that is that perhaps is worth the fact that it is evolving away from, you know, what we knew. And, you know, I, I, I speak for myself more than you, Duncan, in this, but I've certainly recently, I think, become that guy who in the 90s would have been going, this isn't as good as the 60s. You know, it's that. <laughs> I'm now saying that about the 90s in, in, in a way. I think it comes for us all. <laughs> I think it does. I think, it does. <laughs> I think, I think it's a natural thing. And, yeah. Yeah. And you have to fight it. I yeah, mean, you do. I, yeah. No, I, I have that slight curmudgeonly side sometimes when I'm watching yeah. the new Trek shows. As much as all of them I've enjoyed elements of massively, some mm. of them I enjoy more than others. Uh, and I will always tune in every week and, you, you know, watch them uh, and enjoy them and you know get stuff out of them but yeah they're, they're you have to keep that kind of uh <laughs> inner curmudgeon at bay i think yeah, um, yeah but it's interesting you know talking about uh discovery i mean discovery has been a success i mean discovery was the show that brought brought trek back and they have just been recommissioned for a fifth season which is you know something that hasn't happened for a trek show since 
Voyager, I guess, you know, whenever that was. Uh, <laughs> you know, Enterprise didn't make it to five seasons. Uh, famously, the original series did not make it to five seasons. And I assume since they, you know, the opening credits of the original series were all about the five-year mission, uh, that must have been the goal, right? <laughs> and right. They, you know, they, got <laughs> they, they didn't make it. So so we obviously have, uh, you know, we've made it to five years. We've... we've We've uh, gone one further than uh, <laughs> than the original series, or indeed Enterprise, managed. But it raises this sort of interesting question, actually. I mean, Star Trek has such a peculiar sort of production history of highs and lows and cancellations and being rescued from cancellations and all this sort of stuff. I mean, if TOS had gone to five seasons, what would those other two seasons have been like i mean maybe we see a bit of it in the animated series which is kind of covering that ground but would there have been the decline that we saw between you know seasons one to two to three and it would have just got you know would it have been another two seasons of season three in which case we may not look back as fondly on that show as we do today and equally would it ever have come back again you you know or would that have been it would it been five and done uh, and we'd never have had, you know, the following 50 plus years of Star Trek that we've had as a result of that kind of constant push and pull of, you know, cancellation and then that kind of groundswell of fan support sort of desperately trying to, to bring this thing back from the dead. I don't know. It's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, what is what would have been best for that show? I'm I'm not convinced that we would have been better off had they got those extra two years. Yeah, it's a fascinating what if this, because in some ways the 70s is one of the most fascinating decades for Star Trek, even though it barely was on television or, you know, it was, wasn't on television at all, really, on live action. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot out there about all the, the failed projects and the, the fan conventions. And as you say, the letter writing campaigns and it's, it's, it's rich pickings, really. And, it, it does make you wonder. That, that, that is the crux question, I think. Had it not been cancelled, would the groundswell have been there? Would the decline have carried on? And then fans would have just gone, well, this show's just a bit rubbish now. Let's not, you know, let's leave it. Let's let it go. And I think, because I think if that had happened, I don't think you would have had the motion picture. And I don't think in the end we would have had the next generation. I think potentially Gene Roddenberry would have just moved on and focused on things like... Um, uh, the the other projects that he never quite made work stuff like the Quester tapes or um, there was that other show oh, I can't remember the name of it I think there was a pilot made Andromeda well there was Andromeda but there was another one as well and oh, I, right. I can't think uh, of the life of me what the name of it is it's one Final name. Conflict something like that oh no there was Earth Final Conflict yeah as well there's another one anyway there's a few that was a Roddenberry one wasn't it yeah, yeah. there's a few mm. that he that he and I think he potentially would have gone down that road and made those probably none of which would have been as successful as Star Trek has been, but they might have had a few seasons here and there. But uh, So it is a massive, massively interesting question. I think in terms of creativity, it would have depended who would have been involved, really, because I think the absence of Gene Kuhn made a massive difference in the the 60s, in that final season. And I think had they managed to get... And there there was a lot... There's lots out there about what went wrong and and the, the difficulties and the clashes and things like this that happened. There's no get saying that Gene Coon would have come back, but I think had he for seasons four and five, I think you would have seen an upswing in quality for sure, hundred percent. I think it, it did decline. I don't think you would have seen the animated series exactly ported in because those episodes are just. I, <laughs> I think they were on a lot of drugs when they were making some of those episodes, you know. Um, and I don't think some of those could have been made for television, 
really, especially with the limitations of of what you could do, because um, there is some wacky stuff in those animated episodes. Some of which, some of which is great, some of which is so terrible. We would not have had the underwater episode where <laughs> Kirk and Spock grow gills, for example. No. Much as I would love to see that no. in live action, but yeah, I also don't think we'd have had the magics of Megas Two either, um, which is just bonkers. No. Um, Which would be a loss for sure. I yeah, love that well, one. yeah, actually, it would because that's just great fun. Um, but you know, I, I think they it would have been great. But equally, you wouldn't we wouldn't have had uh, stuff like Yesteryear, which is a great episode of of television, which they wouldn't have been able to really pull off because it relies on a, a you know the Vulcan planet vistas noise kind of things, just things they didn't have the budget for really to do well. So I think. It would have been really fascinating to see. And I think so much of it would have depended on who was involved, who creatively was at the tiller. Um, because because there's no doubt about that, that season three is compared to particularly season one, which I still think is the... I think it just declines season on season. I think season one's the apex. Season two has some good stuff in it, but so much of season three is poor. It's really poor. And it's it's a show becoming a shadow of its former self, really. So what do you think? Do you think there would have been any kind of changes there? potentially or would it have just carried on the way it was going i just don't know i mean to be honest i probably don't know enough about the kind of institutional history of tos i mean i i know you know roddenberry was less involved he was off doing something or other wasn't he was he on vacation for a long yeah, time? yeah. Having, a, having a bit of a break <laughs> gene coon as you say big uh big figure i mean you know maybe someone would have come and righted the ship sort of thing but i don't know it's it's hard i, I suppose because you've got that year on year on year uh, decline in quality. Not to say that there aren't great episodes in season three and that there aren't many, many great episodes in season two, but the fact is it does it does feel like there's a case of diminishing returns there. I think that would have been uh, tricky for Trek to kind of get over. Although it, it is a kind of fascinating question. You know, we would have been seeing original series episodes coming out in 1971. What would that have looked like? Uh, you know, it wouldn't have just been a show of the 60s, um, anymore and what kind of impact would that have had i don't know i mean who knows in that parallel universe obviously everything works out very differently but the fact is um they didn't get to fulfill their their five-year mission i wonder whether also if they had uh would we have got a kind of finale i mean we never got a finale for the original series obviously enterprise was able to do it with this very you know poisonous love letter uh disastrous (laughs) uh finale that they that they bunged in there um but they did at least kind of get to do it but uh tos sort of never did and maybe that's another reason why star trek has always been able to kind of come back and and keep going over the years because they never quite put a um you know we never saw the handover of the ship to a new captain or or the mothballing of the ship or you know whatever it might have been uh it kind of was allowed to in our imaginations keep boldly going forever it's hard to say, isn't it? Because they did have certain shows of that era did have endings. Like you know, one of the biggest successes of the sixties was The Fugitive, and that did eventually have a finale that wrapped everything up. You know, where Richard Kimball was proven innocent in that sense. You had shows like, well, then you had shows that had a very surreal endings, like The Prisoner, which ends in just baffling fashion because that's so different from anything else. And then there is a lot. There's a lot of, but it is definitely an ending. Isn't <laughs> it? You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an end back from it. No, there's no, no yeah, absolutely. It is an ending. Um, but it, you have a lot of shows also that are more procedural based, I think, that don't really have an ending as such. You know, they just end the season and that's it. So it's hard to say because Star Trek in that original series didn't have arcs, really. It didn't have 
it didn't really have too many recurring characters either. It didn't do too many sequ- it didn't really do sequel episodes, really. It might have had Harry Mudd come back, but it didn't really do lots of sequel episodes. It didn't have, you know, like in the in the in the TNG era, lots of recurring faces or, you know, uh, uh, you know, things like say a good example is like the Eddington arc in DS9, say, where you'll have a character come back once or twice a season for a few seasons and things like that. It didn't do anything like that. So, and I don't think it would have done. I don't, I don't think television, television just wasn't written like that back then for the most part. And I think it, so I, it does make you wonder whether they would have had a five, the five year mission. It would have just been a, a bit like Endgame in Voyager where they just, at the very end of an episode, they go, well, that's it then we're off back to space dock, you know, and that's it. You know, that's the end of the five year mission. And whether they would have just done a, I think they would have just done a standard episode where, you know, they go to a planet and there's people dressed up like, I don't know, medieval Vikings, you know, Vikings or medieval soldiers or whatever, you know, and then it's like the end because, well, Spock, that's the end of a five year mission. And I th- I, that's more likely, I think, than some big wrap up, personally. Well, it's interesting that we've come around to talking of endings and it calls to mind, uh, Valeris has that line in Star Trek Six, doesn't she? It is of endings that I wish to speak because this episode for us is an ending, at least of mm. sorts, uh, I think, because we've been going for five years. As I say, you know, I was a sprightly young fan in my mid thirties <laughs> when we started this. Now I'm, you know, creaking up to getting my own copy of A Tale of Two Cities and <laughs> gazing wistfully into the distance. Um, it feels to me like this is a good moment for us to wrap up this show, at least in its present incarnation. That's not to say that we will never record again together, that there won't be any other episodes. I mean, TOS ended and then came back for six movies. Uh, Star Trek ended and then came back um, in many different forms. We're going so to come back in 10 years... Culture. With uh, with the yeah. beards, like, like we're going to come back like McCoy. That's right. Yeah, we'll have. Yeah, we grumpily dragged back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, drafted yeah. out of retirement. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no. But so my idea is 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 this will be the final voyage of primitive culture as a regular, or at least notionally regular uh, <laughs> podcast. Originally, we were we were uh, once a fortnight, yeah. twice a month for American listeners. Um, and since then, ever since the pandemic, to be honest, the scheduling has slightly gone out the window. But I, I've been sort of aiming to get an episode out a month at least. But this will be the final regular episode of Primitive Culture. But I'm hoping we will be back for specials uh, now and then. I'm still hoping we can keep going to the conventions and chatting to the cast and crew. Uh, and maybe a few times a year, get together for a chat about another topic. So uh, my intention is not that this is a is a sort of final full stop, but this is the kind of um, you know this is a pause at least uh, and an ending to to what we've done so far. It's been quite a journey, Tony, um, since you <laughs> twisted my arm five years ago to to do this show that I thought um, sounded interesting but a slightly crazy idea. I mean, I never thought then that I would be <laughs> sitting here five years later reflecting on what more than hundred hundred odd episodes that we've done. I was going to say done together, some of them together, some of them separately. But um, th- th- this is a show that certainly had legs. It did on and cells. It, it, yeah, it did. And credit to you, Duncan, because you're the one who, who took it on. You know, I, I I stepped away. We talked about this. I think in the hundred hundredth episode we did with uh, with Clara. But uh, you know, I stepped away regularly fairly early on really and you you've you've kept this going for years and you've done a fantastic job and pulled in some some brilliant people to talk you know um outside of myself and clara who've probably been on more than other people but um 
yeah, you know, you've, you, you've had some amazing discussions and it, it, it is, it is amazing how elastic this has been really in that it can go into anywhere really. I mean, the freedom to talk about so many fascinating historical cultural topics present day, you know, in the past, reflecting things that have just happened. I mean, it's, it's fascinating and, and it, there is in a way no ending to it really. I, I think, I think. It's proven that you could easily get another 100, 200 episodes out of something like this, I think, really. And because Star Trek is so rich and it has so many facets that you can mine and look into. We've still got that list of ideas that we came up with five <laughs> years ago for episodes. And I'm sure, you know, about half of them probably we never even touched. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is so much in there. I mean, you know, there's 800 plus episodes now of Trek on TV. And also, you know, compared to most entertainment franchises... It is very rich in terms of uh, where it draws from, its influences. I mean, when I tell people who aren't Star Trek fans that I have a podcast, they say, oh, yeah, what's it about? And then I say it's about Star Trek. <laughs> it's about everything. Culture or whatever. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, well, what, what What do you mean? How can you keep, how can you talk about that every week? <laughs> do you know what I mean? They just like, they, they don't get, uh, I say every week, every, you know, whatever yeah. month, fortnight, whatever it is. They're baffled by the idea that there could be so much to talk about. Um, but there is, you know, this is a universe that is, it is so seeped in our own. Um, I mean, hence that's why we called it primitive culture. You know, it, it, it is a product of our culture as any entertainment is, of course. But I feel like with Star Trek, those, uh, ties are more in some ways more blatant, in other ways quite subtle, but they're, they're there at pretty much every level and they're interesting, uh, things to draw out. So with that in mind, I just thought this is very self-indulgent, but you and I could have a little look back. And I'm going to borrow a format from uh, another Star Trek podcast that if anyone who listens to this uh, doesn't listen to already, which I find surprising if that's the case, but if you don't, definitely go and check it out. Trek Ranks podcast uh, hosted by Jim Morehouse, Enterprise Extra on Twitter, uh, who I've never had as a guest on this show, actually. I've, I've always been meaning to get him on, but who knows, maybe we will. Uh, someday in the future. For phase but two. A, a brilliant show. And basically, phase two, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the format for that show is you pick your top five of whatever it is. And for each one, you give a five word description and a hashtag. So we're going to whiz through and uh, and give you our own top five primitive culture episodes. So maybe, you know, if you haven't listened to the whole back catalogue, you can go back and check them out. Uh, if you have, you can tweet us and tell us why we're wrong and those were crap. Uh, <laughs> which your own favourites were. I'd love it if any regular listeners uh, would tweet us with their own top five um, episodes, just so we can have a bit of a kind of... That'd be good. Uh, self-congratulatory, nostalgic wallowing in <laughs> in our own achievements of the last <laughs> five years. Um, but anyway, Tony, so starting with round five, uh, then what's your... Give us your five-word summary and your hashtag for your your number five uh, top primitive culture episode. Okay, so for my first one, I am saying World War Three closing in is my five-word summary, and uh, the hashtag is what is this? The Dark Ages, which is a terrible McCoy impression. So what? That's pretty good. What, <laughs> Now, now I have to try and guess what it is, don't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, did talk, we did do an episode talking about World War Three, I think, but um, or it was about the, the period that Trek doesn't cover. Is that right? That's right. So it was is episode 51, which was called Getting From Here to There, where we, yeah, we talked about that that space in between the uh, the eugenics wars, World War Three, um, the post-atomic horror, you know, which is a fascinating section for me, especially given it's... It's rapidly closing in now in the real world. 
<laughs> you know, um, in eventually, eventually, this is where, you know, in a future era of Star Trek, you know, when we're old, old men, Duncan, you know, where we've got Star Trek Burnham and we've got a middle eight, we've got an old Sonequa <laughs> Martin Green coming back. <laughs> I think they will end up doing an episode set in like 2050 or whatever, which is in the post-atomic horror for sure. I think they will end up exploring that. Um, God knows what the actual world will be like by then. But yeah, I, I feel it's just a fascinating space to to talk about. So we, and, and that, that was a great discussion, I think, because there was lots of comparisons to where we're going in our world right now. It's interesting. I, funnily enough, I don't have a very strong memory of that one, but I do remember it was one of those topics, and this happens now and then on Primitive Culture, where someone says they want to talk about something, and I don't at all know where it's going to go. Oh, I thought you were going to say, I didn't one, at all want to talk about this. I don't at all want to. No, no, it's not that. It's not that. I, I quite like it in some ways when people bring something, but it's just like something that would not have occurred to me. And there was one that Clara brought once that was about alternative stuff like if star trek had been made in other countries at the <laughs> same time or something i was just like wow i'd never that's fascinating that never, yeah that idea had never crossed my mind so it was for me it was a little bit of an out there topic but you're right it was it was an interesting conversation that came out of it and i'm glad that you suggested that one okay so uh with a a little bit of a link here uh and this is going to be harder for you to guess um but this is my number five choice five word summary it's been a long road Hashtag getting from there to here. <laughs> is this the one you did with Darren about the, the yeah about the, the nineties progression and things like that and Voyager and stuff like that? No, that that was that was I did a couple of episodes with Darren that were both quite interesting, both talking about about Voyager. No, this was this was a bit of an oblique uh, clue, really. This is episode one I was ah. thinking of. Uh, <laughs> the, long, the long road is the five years from then to now. Yeah. Um, this was our episode on Oppenheimer. Uh, yeah. Episode one, destroyer of destroyers of worlds. I love doing that partly because it was the first time we'd done this show together. I was quite nervous at the time about how we were going to make it work. Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily. I have listened back to it. I, I think it's a perfectly good episode. I don't think it's necessarily one of our best episodes, but I just I, I think we did a perfectly decent job on it. And I just found it absolutely fascinating, you know, spending a week getting to know a subject that I really knew almost nothing about, the Manhattan Project, um, doing a bit of reading around that. We watched a movie or I watched a movie anyway. Did you watch that movie with Dwight Schultz as Oppenheimer? That was um, uh, that was a fun I, bit of research. I didn't, but I read the book. I read the Oppenheimer book. This massive uh, okay, you read the Oppenheimer, American the Prometheus, Oppenheimer book, right? Yeah, not in a week. Oh, yeah, you I did. hasten yeah, to yeah, add. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's okay. a beast. No, maybe we had a bit more of a lead-in for that one. <laughs> but um, I just, I just remember the sort of um, excitement of this new project that we were embarking on, and how interesting I found it, and how. And I suppose the fact that I was learning about a period of history that I didn't know a huge amount about um, and drawing some kind of fascinating connections. So that was the start of this journey for me um, and one that I still think about five years on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually had picked that for one of my choices. So I'm going to um, I'm going to hastily get a backup in place now. But yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I thought I thought it was a it was a really interesting topic to start with. It was. It was a lot of fun to research, and yeah, just doing it, it was like it was a proof of concept, I guess. You know, for us, it was the, it was the point where I think we thought, you know, this is going to work. This is going to work, you know, and we can, you know, we can go into all these different areas. And um, yeah, I, I I remember it vividly, and I, I suppose you always will, won't you? As the first episode you record of anything, but um, yeah, it's a great. You never forget your first. You never time, forget. <laughs> <laughs> you put it better than I ever could. There, yeah, that's true. But. 
<laughs> but I think you're right. I think you're right that um, it it was a proof of concept because I think we pitched the idea for the show to Chris Jones, um, and I'm pretty sure he did ask us to record an episode and like, yeah. send it to him so he could have a listen and just yeah. check that we weren't, you know, jumping off the Crazy. deep end. Basically, yeah. so yeah, you're right. That was kind of that was our pilot. Okay, what's your number two? Okay, you you can you we can have duplicates by the way. Can I mean, I? Don't don't feel you have to to swap it out. Uh, yeah. Okay, but anyway, let's have your your number four uh, round four. I will I will have I will have this as my number four then because I've got three others and I'm not okay. sure you're going to match those. You're going to do the same one as me. So yeah, I'll have uh, Destroyers of Worlds episode one. Yeah, Go, worth checking out. What's your What's your five words and your hashtag for that? So my five words I had: Men of Mutually Assured Destruction, um, and then my hashtag was I am become death. So to quote the uh, the full title, yeah, of that wow, uh, phrase. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty dark. Very nice. Mm, yeah, pretty dark. <laughs> I mean, this is a show we we you know do enjoy recording primitive culture, but it has gone dark at times. Clara and I were always joking that every time we said we were going to do a cheery topic, we ended up talking about genocide or you know. <laughs> <laughs> abuse or horrific suicide i don't know <laughs> it's kind of grim topics which is strange because you're both um, very cheery people like you know yet you both <laughs> <laughs> chose these dark topics we're lured to the dark side yeah uh, well funnily enough my my number four pick is is very much in that uh in that ballpark right five word summary is brutal regime offers no sanctuary hashtag attica now, I don't know oh. whether you will remember this episode. Did you remember? I think you did listen to it at the time, but it's a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Is, is this about Does the this prison? Any bells to you? Well, is this about the prison mm. experiment stuff that you did? The uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's not an experiment. I mean, it's, it's yeah, no, it is about a prison. You're right. Attica was a prison in upstate New York. And this was the inspiration. I mean, the, one of the things that I found interesting about this was it was an episode that we came up with purely based on me skimming through the amazing DS9 companion. And I was looking at the entry for past tense. I can't remember why, which is, you know, one of my favourite Deep Space Nine episodes. Fantastic episode. People always talk about past tense in terms of the kind of rip from the headlines issue of homelessness, which obviously is a big uh, influence on that story. But I was really struck reading it that there was uh, a quote from Iris Stephen Bear saying when he was writing it, he was thinking about the Attica prison uprising. And that was the kind of model for the, um, you know, the hostage situation and and how all of that played out. And I have to say, I had never even heard of the Attica prison uprising. And I don't think Clara had either. So I just said, you know, this this sounds like an interesting topic. Why don't we go and research it and, and find out about it? So we both went away and we read an incredible book. I can't remember the name of the author, but I think she may have won the Pulitzer Prize for it or something uh, about this um, uprising. And it, it was a really awful, you know, horrific, um, shocking story. Uh, about the way these prisoners were treated and the way that, you know, they were cracked down on and these police who basically, off-duty police who just went in kind of for a chance to kill people, essentially, by the end of it all. Um, So it was a bit of a tough read and a bit of a tough topic, but I just found it absolutely eye-opening. And the fact that doing this podcast brought me to topics uh, in history that I, you know, knew nothing about and hadn't literally even ever heard of, but afterwards sort of felt like I was so glad that I knew about them. Uh, I just felt that was a, that was a kind of key moment for me in a way, um, realising that this show could, could be eye opening, you know, hopefully it's eye opening for the listeners, but also very much eye opening for the hosts as well. Yeah. Attica was, um, Dog Day Afternoon, wasn't it? With Al Pacino, where he's, 
He mentioned, or he mentions Attica in right. that, I think. I think I maybe think you're he, right. Oh, might, might not, no, I've it might not be seen, about Attica, but I think film, he, but... I seem to remember going, Attica, mm. Attica. Anyway, anyway. Um, mm. Yeah, that's coming out. No, yeah, it's great. It was a great. I do remember that episode, actually. Yeah, not vividly, but I remember listening to it, and I did think it was a great discussion. And that's the thing, exploring things that you didn't know about beforehand is what was one of the joys of this, for sure. And actually... Um, it's a shame we didn't, when we were recording more regularly, it's a shame we didn't sort of assign each other a topic in a way. We should have done that at points. We should have said, picked something out the hat and gone, right. And, you know, if we don't know anything about it, this is what we're going to do, really. But, um, but yeah, no, it great, great choice. Great choice. You, you're going to make me want to go back and listen to a lot of these now, I think, which I might well do, actually, because they don't, they don't age badly, you know, these episodes. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, well, not to... Toot our own horn, but yeah, worth a re-listen. I, I've I've gone back to a few of them when I've been doing, um, for example, the, the Oppenheimer one. I wrote a feature for the Star Trek website on a similar topic, so I went back and listened to that as my uh, sort of you know boning up on my research, basically. But um, yeah, I think they're they're you know they're all still there uh, <laughs> as long as yeah, uh, the, as long as Trek FM still has the back catalogue, they're all there to go yeah. back to should you wish to so tony what's your number three pick uh so my number three pick is is my five uh letter my five words which is marquee cardassians and the badlands and uh <laughs> i've gone i've gone for a, 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 a naughty hashtag that only certain british listeners of a certain age are going to get this reference but my hashtag is i shall say this only once <laughs> So what episode okay, do you is think? This, uh, is this the episode on the French resistance? That's right. Yeah. No, it is. That it's is about right. Okay, good. Ep- episode <laughs> eight. But yes, not, you're right. Not futile, which yeah. Uh, well, yeah, was about yeah. uh, the French resistance and the link and the connections to the Marquis in DS9. Um, and I remember reading a book uh, called Resistance. Um, I can't remember who it was by. Maybe it was right. Matt Tastings or someone like that. Anyway, it was, it was a really good book and it was all about the actual French resistance and the original Marquis and uh, the heroic character in that. And, and it was, I, I just remember it was a lot of fun. Uh, and that hashtag, by the way, is a reference to the British comedy show, Allo Allo, which, <laughs> which I would encourage anyone to look on YouTube if you don't know what that is. Um, and find Asha says this only once. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a good episode that I, I really enjoyed the research. Obviously it was a field that you already had some knowledge of given you're a world war two historian in in the main and you deal a lot with that so uh i'm sure that was fun for you to go and explore as well duncan or at least i think it was at the time yeah i loved it i mean funnily enough i I don't know why that didn't cross my mind when i was drawing up my own list but i did really enjoy researching that one i was in france when we were prepping for that one i was in the south so i was actually uh going around looking at like monuments to uh you know french resistance heroes who'd been executed and so on um and lying on a you know sun lounger uh reading i think i had a i don't know if i read the same book as you or a different one but anyway reading quite an interesting account of the of the french resistance yeah i thought it was fascinating it made me feel that i wished that i spoke better french because yeah, I, that is kind of my period. And I, you know, do spend a lot of time speaking to people who lived through that period. And I would absolutely love to have written a book uh, where I got to talk to, you know, French resistance operatives, assuming there are any left now. I mean, they might be, they'd be getting on a bit by now, even five years ago. But um, yeah, absolutely fascinating, amazing stories there. Um, and really interesting to kind of tie those into Star Trek as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh 
it it was it you know the resistance particularly in ds9 that show is so much about resistance movements and you know freedom uh from tyranny it's yeah it was just great you know and, I, and that's so much about that i love so that i love that i love that chat it was a great it was a great episode and i love the research so fascinating topic so yeah that's my number three Okay. Well, my number three is uh, five word summary something wicked this way warps. Hashtag Master <laughs> of Horror. Oh, is this now Master of Horror? I immediately go to someone like John Carpenter. So, is this the episode you did about Christine? Maybe the car. It's not. No, though, that was another fun one. That was a great one that um, Brandon, Brandon. Uh, Shane Metalla brought, uh, yeah, brought to the show. Uh, which makes me think that, that you know there were other many other great topics that other kind of Trek FM uh, hosts brought to the show at various times. But no, this was an interview that I did with Brandon Braga. He's the master of horror that I am thinking of about right. how he managed to get his horror fixation into Star Trek on a number of occasions. And it was a really enjoyable one. I think it was one of the first interviews that I did with the kind of behind the scenes. Uh, personnel on the show particularly the writers of which I've done quite a few and I've always found them really interesting so I I kind of picked it partly to stand in for those more generally but also I think it worked really well because there was a proper primitive culture topic that we were discussing it wasn't just a kind of fluff interview about you know what are you working on now whatever Um, it was great to have someone on the show who had that experience you know you know who's one of the people who's created decisions we're discussing, uh, you know, month on month, um, and to actually get it from the horse's mouth, but also to get them to sort of engage with it in the format of the show, in a sense, and talk about something, one of these kind of bigger cultural ties to Trek, um, in a way. So so that was the one I, I've, I found really interesting anyway. Yeah, it's, it's been great when you've got these these people on. I mean, you recently had um, Naren Shankar, didn't you? I think, and... Uh... Mm. Lisa Clink he was as a well. Great one too, yeah. yeah, you've you, yep. you've really mm-hmm. got some fantastic, and obviously you had Nick Meyer on as well. You've had some brilliant, brilliant interviews with uh, you know some top rank Trek people, and that Braga one was fantastic. So yeah, it's um, it's just been fascinating, and I think I think the questions you've asked wouldn't necessarily be asked on every podcast. I think I think you've gone into some really good areas with them and some really interesting places. So no, I, I love that. I will miss that actually. The fact because in, you were you were really getting some great people and the, there's plenty more still out there really so yeah that was a great one. Well, I managed to stump Nick Meyer as well because <laughs> he uh, he had famously been objecting to the fact that they brought um, Spock back in Star Trek Three and that was he he refused to work on the they asked him to work on the film and he was like no I'm not working on it you're bringing this character back from the dead I don't I don't believe in that uh, as a Jew I don't believe <laughs> in, you know the resurrection of Christ and I'm therefore not going to write this story where you you resurrect Spock and then I said to him oh. You, you know, so that being the case, how do you feel about um, Sherlock Holmes being brought back from the dead? Because obviously, you know, he was killed off quite early on and then brought back. <laughs> he was like, oh, no one's ever asked me that before. You know, <laughs> need to think about that one. Uh, <laughs> because obviously, if that hadn't happened, none of his Sherlock Holmes stories would have been possible. Yeah, but, it's um, true. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he, he's, he, he was, uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed all those interviews. Nick Meyer was quite an intimidating person to speak to in some ways. Yeah. Brandon was a bit more, uh, more laid back. But I mean, I mean, all the Trek writers, I've I've really enjoyed speaking to. Them. They've all been really lovely, actually, in their own ways. Um, so, I, and I'm I'm really glad that the show has been able to get some of that uh, content, I suppose, and get some of that kind of those first hand accounts because I think they are really illuminating and, and fascinating for me, anyway, as someone who's who's really into all this stuff. 
So, um, Tony, what's your number two pick? My number two pick is uh, my uh, five words are, I am not a number. And my hashtag is, inevitably, I'm a free man. <laughs> okay, this one I think I can definitely you'll, guess. You'll get this, this one. Prisoner. Um, which I have to say I loved. I'd never watched it before. And I watched the whole series uh, in preparation for this. And I'm again, I'm so glad to you for bringing me this topic because I may not have ever got around to doing that otherwise. And it was a weird, surreal, trippy <laughs> blast. So thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. This was episode 61, Checkmate, um, in which we talked about, yeah, The Prisoner, the, the like we mentioned earlier, the brilliant 1960s Patrick McGowan series. And it's links to uh, DS9's Move Along Home. <laughs> and I, I almost had um, Almorane123 as my um, hashtag. <laughs> But I think we had a lot of fun singing that <laughs> at the time as well and talking about that one. It, and and it's, it, it was a really fun topic, that, actually, because it did allow for rewatching The Prisoner, which is is just fantastic, a fantastic show. And, you know, it even made me like move along home a little bit more as well, <laughs> which I tell you what, it takes that takes some doing. Because that surely, I mean, we talked about this in the episode, but that surely got to be down there with the worst Star Trek episodes ever surely it's it's bad but it's kind of harmless i feel you know it's a yeah. spock's brain not a it's not profit and lace it's not um <laughs> true uh true. you know it's not offensive no it's, <laughs> it's just stupid <laughs> uh, and there are there are joyous moments in it so the I dancing yeah yeah it could worth, be worse yeah, yeah it's worth it for yeah. that alone so yeah i i loved that chat so i thought i'd throw that in there as well okay my uh number two five word summary when you eliminate the impossible hashtag elementary Ah, this has got to be your uh, Sherlock Holmes conversation. The uh, yeah, it has to be the one you and Clara did. That's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Not the not the one with Nick Meyer. I mean, it was kind of a, a loose two parter. There, we did we we'd been looking to do a, a Sherlock Holmes episode for a long time. This was another one of these ones that had been kind of on the back burner for ages because Clara is a massive Sherlock Holmes fan. Um, and then Nick Meyer had a Sherlock Holmes book a- around the same time. So I managed to, to get an interview with him, put that out as a kind of part two. But yes, this is the, the first part, um, episode 80, the game, which was about Sherlock and Spock and, uh, the, the kind of links between those characters. And I put this in there, um, partly because one of the, great joys for me of working on primitive culture, as I said, is the research, is finding out about new things. It's also, you know, forcing myself to read things that I might otherwise never have got round to. Um, my Audible subscription uh, has has done very well out of me doing this <laughs> podcast because <laughs> a lot of the time that I have for reading is while I'm walking the dogs or doing the washing yeah. up or, you know, stuff like that, rather than sitting down with a book. And I actually managed to get, for one Audible credit, anyone who has a subscription, this is a bargain, to get the complete works of Sherlock Holmes wow. uh, read by Stephen Fry, oh, wow. who does a brilliant job, That's fantastic. as you might expect. Yeah, And they are something like 70 hours I think in total I mean it, it's it's nuts I like I don't know how many weeks or months he must have spent in the recording booth uh, <laughs> recording them all but so I listened to the whole thing from start to finish over the course of several months I think and I absolutely loved it and I would never have sat down and read the complete Sherlock Holmes stories uh, of which you know there are many but um if not for this podcast so I'm grateful to primitive culture for you know giving me the prompt to 
to read some of these amazing books that I otherwise might not have got round to. The Epic of Gilgamesh. I don't think I ever would have got round to reading that either if it hadn't been for another episode that Clara and I did on epic heroes. So that's been another great uh, pleasure for me of this show is not just finding out about historical topics I didn't know about, but also reading some great works of literature that I might never have got round to either. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. It, it, and that, that, um, that Sherlock Holmes episode was great. You know, I've I've read um I've got the complete works, but I haven't read not an audio, although I really would wouldn't mind getting that Stephen Fry one, I have to say. But I've and I've not read all of them, but I've read a few. Um but there's but you hearing you guys talk about that and the connections to, you know, elementary deer data and all these different all the different things, the Sherlock Holmes connections in Spark and all this kind of stuff in Star Trek was fantastic. It was really, really great and it was it was well worth the wait. That one, yeah, I lo- I loved that episode, and it, and that that is that is part of the joy. It's not just about learning about history and things we didn't know about. It is the reading. It is the it is the literature, and it's been that's one been one of the great things about this podcast in that it's managed to balance both. It's really you know explored. There's very little corner of history or culture in many ways that this podcast hadn't already explored, even though it could have tons more episodes. So yeah. This is a great example of what primitive culture could do. And hopefully it encourages listeners to go and check these things out as well. I mean, I always, if, you know, if I've enjoyed something uh, as part of the research, I'll, I'll say if I haven't enjoyed something as well, which is sometimes the case, but, but usually, usually there's something worth checking out there. Uh, and I think it's something that the, the listeners can hopefully follow up on themselves if they want to. So, Tony, your number one pick, your favourite episode from the last five years of Primitive Culture, hit me. Well, I had to go for this one because this was one I never, ever thought we'd do. I've gone, my, this is my five-word uh, summary, Praxis and the Undiscovered Country, and my hashtag is clean their chronometers. Um, <laughs> so, I, <laughs> what, what, which, what, which this one? Is this is another one. This is another one that was on the on the list for a very long time because I was massively intimidated. This was the episode about the end of the Cold War, That's right? right. Which was one that, that I think was probably one of our, you know, like they always talk about what were Gene Roddenberry's original five episodes for, for TOS, uh, his original pitch. This was one of the very first topics that you wanted us to do. Yeah. And I just kept putting it, I put it off for years and years and years. Uh, but then finally, I, you know, steeled myself and, and got round to it and did a bit of research. And actually, I found it fascinating. It was a really interesting topic. Um, and one of those things, I mean, I'd always heard this line, it's, it's in our, you know, opening credits, actually, you know, the end of history. Some people say the future means the end of history. And I had not, I was not familiar with the Fukuyama essay uh, that that line is taken from, which was obviously a fairly contemporary reference point at the time the film came out. But it was fascinating uh, digging into that essay, digging into the history of the period and really trying to get a sense of, you know, what that moment, that kind of early 90s moment uh, was like. I mean, obviously, we both lived through it. But as kids, I think you you maybe don't fully appreciate some of this stuff and how that really informed not just that movie, but you know, Star Trek more generally at that time, that, that that's why we get next gen in the form that we do uh, for a start and kind of, you know, what changed afterwards as well. I think it's a fascinating, really fascinating kind of broader sort of cultural topic. Um, and one of those things that, you know, we've done from time to time on the show. And I, I find really interesting. Yeah. It? 
Yeah, it, it, I, I was so happy to do this. I, I'm going to credit COVID-19 for this because it was May, end of May 2020 when we finally did it. <laughs> so I think it took, was it? Okay. it took a pandemic for us to finally do <laughs> it. I was trapped. It. Yeah, we were, both, we were both locked at home. I couldn't get away from it. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, so right. yeah, episode 85, the end of history. And, and I think it, it's it was such a great, I love this topic anyway. I'm fascinated by Fukuyama's essay and, and the idea of the end of the Cold War and, and the way that they weave that into you know, intentionally into the undiscovered country with Praxis being a big metaphor for Chernobyl. Uh, it, it was just fantastic. I thought, I thought, you know, I love that film in so many ways and it was so much fun doing the research, reading. There was a book I wanted to read, a Robert Service book about the end of the Cold War that I just didn't get a chance to do. I still want to read that book, actually. But the, it is a rich topic and I, I was so pleased that we got to do it finally. And, uh, I mean, it, it's one actually particularly would be interesting to go back and listen to now, given as we record in uh, April, early April 20, 2022, with the invasion of Ukraine, I think the end of history, uh, I think we're now at the beginning of history again, frankly. I think it's all, I think a lot's changed and a lot is changing about that very topic. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see where that all lands as we go into this uncertain future. So yeah, I was so, so glad, so glad. Can I, can I have one, one, <laughs> one honorary mention while I'm here uh, for an episode we did mm-hmm. not long after, <laughs> which I still, I haven't got a hashtag off, I'm honest, or, or five words, but I just want to mention this because we had such fun with this <laughs> and I've got to mention Brigadont. Which, oh God. <laughs> which was our, our episode talking about Meridian and Brigadoon yeah. because that was such a good laugh. <laughs> that was, that's, I'll tell you what, no, I take it back. Move Along Home isn't anywhere as bad as Meridian. So, you know, no. that, that, but no. I just had to mention that because that was a great chat. That was Unless that's fun. your number that one. Was, that sure. might be your number one, Duncan. I don't it, know. I, I mean, you know, no spoilers, but uh, no, that, <laughs> that, one is, that one is not my number one. Okay, so my my number one, uh, the most fun I think I've had from five years of Primitive Culture. Five word summary, five Trekkies on stage together. Hashtag live and kicking. Hey, so that's got to be the um, the episode we did at DST. The... Um, the one with Larry Nemechek as well was involved with us. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was you, I, he was Lee Hutchison. Eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember Larry had was I don't know off signing something or whatever? Wandered in about ten minutes later. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. It was great to have him. He came in in the end, didn't yeah. he? Um, and it was you, me, Lee, Clara, and uh, and, and Larry. And Larry um, talking about uh, it was episode forty four, Space Nazis and the Starry Sea. That's right. I, th- I think the episode we put out too because we, you and I did a, a, a little panel as, as well separately. But but it was the the group one that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and I put it in there partly because I always love doing these kind of outside broadcast episodes. Uh, I think I, I always felt bad for Chris because I know he worries about audio quality <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Do you remember we did one where there were helicopters circling half the yeah. time and um, that was and the- all the veterans celebrating uh, in the pub as well. That was the to- was that the <laughs> but, time um, loop? That was the time loop episode, I think. That was it? the time loop. Yeah, 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 that was a fun. Yeah. That was a fun one. That was too. good. But um, but I always quite liked sort of taking primitive culture out on the road uh, and you know recording in kind of uh, different locations, whether acoustically desirable or not uh and also you know getting a whole group together to chat about something i mean i think we only talked for about half an hour uh on that one because we only had that slot on the stage at the convention but it was just really great to get all of us 
together for a sort of roundtable discussion like that and also to have an audience you know and to get questions from the audience uh, I don't know whether any of them had actually listened to the show before or had any idea who we were <laughs> what we were doing <laughs> and we did have that one woman I don't know if you remember who was quite um uh, angry yeah. afterwards because we were yeah. talking about World War Two, and she thought she basically thought World War Two had no place at a Star Trek convention and we should be ashamed of yeah. ourselves for bringing up such a serious topic but that I do aside, remember that. Uh, it <laughs> I do was, remember that. Yeah, that was. That aside, that was bizarre. Uh, that aside, it was um, just a great experience, I guess, to to be there and to be doing this together and to um, you know have all, all all five of us. I mean, all four of us who kind of know each other, plus Larry, uh, who was great to have on the show as well. Um, up there was just a blast. Um, and you know, maybe it'll happen again. Who knows if uh, you know future conventions? I. I do now and then sort of try and pitch them the idea of a panel, but um, maybe one day they'll they'll bite and we'll get to do it all again. Maybe. Or, or at the very least, we'll get to just uh, go to a convention all together and do some press stuff and, and record somewhere. You know, I'm I'm definitely, you know, I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm okay. I'm okay with the idea of going to a convention full of people again. So, um, yeah, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Hopefully okay. ne- the next time or whenever it's back in London. Yeah. So fingers. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll do it again because you you've you've recorded in some brilliant. You've recorded everywhere from pubs to literal cupboards, like <laughs> where you've got mm-hmm. vacuums in the background. But I I I think I also enjoyed the one we did in um, the Prince Charles Cinema as well. And I always remember us struggling to the people trying to take stools away from us. <laughs> I think in the end we were all just sort of stood up <laughs> in the bar. In the we bar. were propping up the bar yeah. while they were, they were trying to close, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was, that a, good was one. a good one. No, it's great. Yeah, yeah for sure. Plus the um, Royal Festival Hall, Clara and I recorded one and she had to go and um, tell some kids to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So we were just recording in a corridor, basically. They were making too much noise. Brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's been challenging at times, Mm. but but always fun to, um, you know, to, to bring the mic out and... And get and also get people's you know immediate reactions to things as well. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't think it was a primitive culture episode, but I did some recording for Trek FM at the Picard premiere, uh, and that was great. You know, uh, to be there to sort of capture some of that atmosphere, but also just to get people's like immediate reactions minutes after having seen that first episode for the first time, um, which is not really what primitive culture is about at all. But um, I always quite enjoy the fact that that doing this show, I suppose, has given me the opportunity as a sort of Trek FM ambassador to go out there and, and um, experience some of these things as well. Uh, so it's been, you know, part part of the fun of it all. A great example of that was the DS9 documentary one as well. That was that was fab, where we were speaking to Alexander Siddig and all of these people. That was, that was a brilliant day, that was. So, yeah, that was uh, another great example of this. The red carpet interviews. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Rather ambitious of them to have a, have a big red carpet premiere in the middle of uh, you know one of those aircraft hangars <laughs> yeah. basically in the in the NEC. But it was great though. But it was an amazing it was an amazing experience seeing was. that documentary and seeing it with the cast there as well. Um, I remember uh, Aaron Eisenberg was sitting quite near to where I was, um, and obviously this was only like a year or so before he died, and he played such a big part in that documentary uh, and was so kind of emotional in the interviews that he was giving that you know i don't yeah. know it's just quite special it's quite special to see that documentary anyway but also to know that the the cast were all there too and that how much it meant to them yeah as well as to us as fans it was yeah and was aside a great experience too. Uh, it, it really was because uh, aside from avery brooks i think pretty much everyone was there really all of yeah. the main cast yeah. and obviously now we've lost aaron eisenberg and rene over you know since which is a real shame yeah and um 
it was it was so lovely. It was such a thrill to see them all there. I mean, DS9 is my favourite show anyway, so and they're my favourite cast of characters from Star Trek. So I was, and I'll never forget one of my favourite experiences from any convention. Might be my favourite was being able to stand up and ask them a question in front of a packed. I mean, it was packed in there, wasn't it? You were there at the same time, and it was packed, and everyone had just watched the documentary, I think. And I'll never forget just it, as part of my question, basically saying, you know, and DS9 is the best Star Trek show. And I said that to all the cast and literally the place erupted with cheers in mm. agreement. And it was so nice yeah. to see their faces because they were all clearly really happy to see that that response. Because I think for years they felt a little bit like they were the ones who were ignored or they were the ones who were, you know. So to see a crowd of like a thousand people massively low in loving what they did, it was so nice to see that, for, especially for those who are no longer with us as well because I don't think they always heard that everywhere. And that day was really special for that. I think it showed them that DS9 is massive for so many people. So that was, I, I, I treasure that memory, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. That was the highlight. That that convention will be hard to beat, I think. Um, but who knows? You know, there's, uh, you know, years to come. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe another one will, will, will match it one day. Mm. Well, it's been... Great chatting to you as ever, mm. Tony. Uh, and it's been great sharing this journey with you over the last five years. It's been a blast. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, first agreeing to my crazy idea in the first place when I sent you a Facebook message. <laughs> Having heard you on Trek on Metatrex and thinking, oh, I like this guy. He knows his stuff. And I was like, yeah. And indulging me and then taking this on yourself and, and making this yours. Because this is this has been yours, you know, your baby, and you've done a brilliant job. So it's been a it's been a real pleasure to pop in every now and then and share this. And uh, you know, I think uh, I'm going to enjoy I'm going to enjoy retirement. I'm going to do some. Uh, what was it that Kirk did? That crazy uh, chopping wood. Cho- no, well, but... chopping wood. You know, <laughs> the aerial skydiving. The aerial skydiving right, that yeah. was cut from generations. I'm going to go off you and can, do some of that. You can do the skydiving. <laughs> you do the skydiving. I'll stick to the chopping wood. All right, I think. Yeah. Well, I'll. <laughs> but I'll. More, well, I'll see you. Either way, I'll see you in the Nexus. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> for sure all right uh well i guess all that remains to say then is uh second star to the right and straight on till morning